Ohio is a perfect illustration of America. You can see the best-in-class hospitals in Cleveland. You can go an hour outside of Cleveland and find destitution and, and people really suffering. There are trends that begin in the heartland that extend all across the country. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio, Dan Skinner here. And that, my friends, was Washington Post health reporter Dan Diamond. On today's episode, I talk with Dan and his colleague Lauren Weber about the quality but also equally distressing reporting they've done on life expectancy here in Ohio. It's part of a series, a wonderful series The Post has been working on, and I can't recommend it more. Specifically, why do Ohio life expectancy outcomes lag those of states just bordering Ohio? And what role does policy play? In my conversation with Lauren and Dan, we talk about the relationship between public health and perceptions of liberty, Ohio's place within larger national conversations, the lack of democratic responsiveness in our state politics, and other issues that show the dire health consequences of Ohio's failure to prioritize public health and safety. Just to give you a sense of the waves the Post article is making and the importance of this episode, the reporting Dan, Lauren, and their colleagues have given us here is so timely and so good that we bumped our episode with Dr. Amy Acton until next week. So stay tuned for that. Before turning to the interview, I want to mention that in our conversation about seatbelt laws and driving, I failed to mention that just last week, Governor DeWine announced newly stringent measures to reduce distracted driving in our state. Though we're a late adopter of these kind of laws, it's really good to see. I'll link to some reporting in the show notes so you can read up on it a bit. And finally, the standard pitch. Please hit the subscribe button in your app and think about sharing this episode with friends. And if you can, please consider throwing us a few bucks through Patreon, which you can click through to at prognosisohio.com. We're working hard over here, really hard, but we need your support. Okay, here's my conversation with Lauren Weber and Dan Diamond of the Washington Post. Lauren Weber and Dan Diamond, thanks for joining me on Prognosis Ohio. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to see you, Professor. Thank you. So if listeners haven't already read the piece we're discussing today entitled How Red State Politics Are Shaving Years Off American Lives, they should do so right away, and, and we've linked to it in our show notes. Uh, it's a sobering, thoughtful, and I might add, carefully reported piece that I think all Ohioans should read. Uh, so it's a real pleasure to get to talk with you about it today. Uh, before I jump into my questions, though, I mean, I wonder uh, if we can get a snapshot of what the response has been so far. Uh, Dan, maybe you want to start. Have, have you received feedback on the piece? It's been a heartening response, uh, Dan Skinner. We had worked on this for months, really a year, and to have the story out in the wild, have academics react to it, uh, politicians, and of course, average people who want to know why life expectancy in America is going the way it is. So overall, a pretty positive response, not uniformly so. Uh, Lauren and I were just talking about this. There are Republicans who have seen the story, conservatives online who don't like the piece. Uh, and and understandable. And we're not saying in this story that Republican policies are the sole reason for life expectancy challenges in America. Far from it. Uh, there, there are chronic disease causes, opioid deaths, uh, the rise in suicides, et cetera, et cetera. But pulling this out as an issue and trying to offer clarity around it, it has been helpful, I think, to policymakers who have wanted to say there are, are ideas and policies that could save lives that are dying in legislatures around the country. And this is a reason why we need to take a second look. 
let's start with a big picture question, which I'm going to address to Lauren here. You know, focusing on three states, what's the idea here? I mean, on the one hand, some critics may say, oh, there are different cultures in these states and that's what's going on. But you're literally looking across borders, uh, contiguous borders. Is this a way of showing that life expectancy outcomes, the, the ones you're investigating, must be at some level in part functions of policy? Or is there more to it? It's a great question. So when Dan and I sat out to do this story, you know, we called around, called a bunch of academics, called a bunch of local officials, and we're, we're trying to figure out the best way to tell it. And um, we, we settled on these three counties along Lake Erie. And the reason why they're a good example is because, frankly, they're all pretty down on their luck. You know, they, they've all lost a lot of jobs over in recent decades uh, as industrial jobs have moved on. None of them are a success story when it comes to health. But you can see through the lens of policy, through the lens of tobacco policy, through the lens of seatbelt policy, serious differences in life expectancy between the three. And the major differences are they are in three different states, despite being under an hour's drive apart from each other. Yeah. And, and, and you write a great deal about state outcomes in this piece, but it, it occurred to me reading the article you know, increasingly in Ohio, the conversations we have here are not about outcomes as such, but often about disparities as well. So I wanted to ask you about that. And maybe, Dan, you can speak to this. Like with smoking, for example, we still see much higher smoking rates among Ohioans of color, which means that the taxes that we could be entertaining here and that you talk about in the article would also have disproportionate impact on, on a population already struggling with addiction disproportionately. So I wonder if disparities came up as well in your conversation in, in addition to the outcomes focus. I'll, I'll take a stab at that and then we'll defer to Lauren. I think the idea, Dan, that there are vulnerable people who might be made more vulnerable by higher cigarette taxes, that, that did come up when we spoke to policy experts. It also came up when speaking to the tobacco lobbyists who use that as an argument to not proceed with the higher tobacco taxes. I, I don't think we saw that as the most compelling argument, frankly. I mean, if the article is about saving lives and the policies that can help, tobacco taxes have a strong link to reducing smoking and then all the positive benefits that come from that. And one reason, as Lauren was saying, we focused on these three counties, is the demographics are relatively similar there. Uh, it's, it's not perfect apples to apples, but it's a lot closer than apples and oranges. I mean, these are counties that are overwhelmingly white, uh, that have had industrial base in the past that has gone away. And then you do see more commonalities there than, say, comparing uh, Ashtabula, Ohio to downtown Cleveland, Ohio. Those are very different circumstances. I would just add, you know, look, the, the folks I talked to in Chautauqua were, were shocked that they were doing much better than folks in Ashtabula. And they are 20% more likely to make it to 65 in Chautauqua than they are in Ashtabula. These are not, these are counties that are consistently ranked in the bottom health metrics for their states that are all right next to each other. So when, when you talk about disparities, they all frankly would qualify as counties that are struggling with disparities compared to the rest of their states, which is why they were better to compare to each other, especially considering they were neighboring. Yeah. And you make it clear. I mean, Chautauqua, for example, is not doing well. These are struggling yeah. places. And in, in a way, the, the the fact that they are all struggling in similar ways makes the story uh, even more compelling, I think. So you address the tension we have here in Ohio between what's called preemption. Sometimes here we talk about it as home rule, where the state bars local jurisdictions from passing their own laws and 
this has real consequences for for public health. And this is selective because these are generally people who talk about small government, but then on certain issues will uh, use the state's power to uh, supersede local laws. Did any local leaders you talked with uh, express frustration about this ability? And how do you make sense of the kind of local government, state government narrative that comes through across the different states you're looking at here? So we spoke with Christine Hill, who was the Ashtabula uh, City Health Commissioner. And so back in 2002, she put in an ordinance that would fine establishments that were selling cigarettes to underage customers. And some of the preemption laws that Republican lawmakers were trying to push through in the legislature this year, I believe it was in January, and then again this summer that were vetoed by DeWine, would have stripped her of that power. And she spoke very clearly to me and and others also spoke to Dan and I about how that kind of taking away of their power would have, would have had negative health consequences. And, you know, as representative sites, who is a Republican legislator said to Dan and I, you know, he said their, their philosophy on preemption laws is we're all for control. We're not for local out of control. And that tension is just very clear between the state legislators and these officials on the ground. And Dan, I'm sure you have more you want to add to that too. No, that that line from Representative Seitz, Bill Seitz, the Republican, I thought was really telling Professor Skinner. The idea that Republicans don't believe in government overreach and and want to empower until they don't, uh, until the policies conflict with what the broader Republican Party doesn't want. And preemption and some of the cigarette vaping issues were indicative of that. So you talk in the piece about declining seatbelt use with its particularly devastating consequences for Ohio, especially compared to Pennsylvania and New York, both states that take seatbelts much more seriously, and the data bears this out. You write, for example, a post-analysis shows that Ashtabula residents are twice as likely to die of motor vehicle accidents uh, as are people in Chautauqua, just a a really stunning um, data point. In your reporting, you encountered people who say they're choosing liberty over some of the established practices we talk about in public health. And public health, increasingly, we've seen, uh, can be seen as an infringement of liberty. But do you get a sense that this framing changes when people have had life experiences? And I wonder, in the conversations you had, if this kind of experiential piece came out. For example, you note that Governor DeWine's daughter died in an auto accident, and that seems to have had an important uh, impact on his public health thinking. I, I think that's exactly right. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, Governor DeWine, in his conversation with us, made it very clear that the loss of his daughter had sharpened his focus on some of these public health issues and on weighing those levers of of personal liberty and safety versus or personal freedom and safety of the public. And as he told us both, you know, he he believes his job is to preserve life. So he is he's been out there pushing for not only stricter um, you know, automobile rules of different kinds. He recently got passed a safe driving initiative that uh, would crack down on texting while driving. But, you know, DeWine has also pushed for a lot of public health initiatives in, in his time, not only as governor, but in Congress and in other variety of government roles with the poison control hotline um, and various, you know, COVID, various other efforts. And, you know, I think as he detailed for us, you know, he lost his daughter it was over 30 years ago, but that is a wound that doesn't go away. And I think it very clearly plays out in how he looks at his role as governor. I think folks are very enthusiastic about liberty until the threat to their life emerges. Uh, we saw some of this with COVID and folks who had 
concerns about government overreach, but then were very concerned that the government didn't do enough to help them during COVID. This is not a new story. I, I think what we were trying to do in this focus on Ohio and then the neighboring counties to Ashtabula was refract these very big issues and persistent issues, and ones going back decades to Ronald Reagan trying to empower states and empower more local control over state spending. What does that actually mean when you give folks control over their fates? And it does bear out in life expectancy, and it does bear out in broader public health too. So our listeners are primarily, you know, within Ohio here. So I have to ask you one of the big questions, you know, as reporters who focus on health from this national perspective, what's your general take on Ohio and the kind of the interest in our in our state? I mean, you could have focused on a number of different states, even regions, right? But Ohio became the focus. So is there something unique that drew you to Ohio? And, and why do you think your national readership will care? Or, or what, what will the interest be here? Well, well first, uh, one way that we came to Ohio was was through Lauren. We had been having conversations with experts around the country, including you, Professor Skinner. We were trying to kind of find our way into this story as all of us across the post on our team are looking at life expectancy on causes of decline, on fatty liver disease, a great story by one of our colleagues. We were trying to figure out the connection between politics and outcomes. And Ohio presented itself when Lauren realized that Ellen Mira and, and John Skinner, relation or not, I, I don't know to you, but professor at Dartmouth had been working on a paper related to Ohio and California, how these two states were on par in terms of life expectancy and then diverged as their politics diverged over the past number of decades, that California got more progressive, Ohio got more conservative. And you can see some of those policies bear out. Uh, as a result of that that political lean, Lauren certainly has has thoughts on this, but I, I would I would wrap mine on on the idea that Ohio is uh, a perfect illustration of America. You can see the best in class hospitals in Cleveland. You can go an hour outside of Cleveland and find destitution and, and people really suffering. There are trends that begin in the heartland that extend all across the country. And I also think you asked about national reporters coming to Ohio. If Lauren and I are doing our jobs, we are outside of Washington, D.C. quite a bit every year. Our stories are, are not about what's happening on Capitol Hill, but maybe what's happening in the country and then refracted through the federal government. What, what should the federal government be doing when confronted with public health challenges around the country? Yeah, I mean, I'll add to that. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I was a Midwest correspondent out there until this year when I joined the Washington Post. And my sister lives in Ohio, so I I, I have some Ohio insight on that. But I, I think that Ohio also had this geographic anomaly where you have three states that are lined up, one that is pretty red, one that is purplish, and one that is blue, all within an hour drive of each other that ring a lake. And that really drew our interest to it in particular. But on top of that, the rich tapestry of, of folks that we met and the dynamics that played out, I mean, I think it's really interesting, we, we touched on it earlier, but Governor DeWine is, is a Republican. So it was really interesting to talk through his contrast with legislative uh, efforts that were in opposition to his public health efforts and and kind of weaving into that that interesting dynamic there was was fascinating to Dan and I. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about the, the piece is 
in Ohio, we've talked a lot and gotten national attention for things like the opioid crisis or the, the COVID response. Um, next week's episode, I'm going to be talking with Director Amy Acton about, about look, kind of looking back on that. So those are two big, big events, two big focuses. But your piece shows that we don't give enough attention to things like cardiovascular disease or diabetes or you know th- these things don't have the kind of um, uh, branding edge or the ability to kind of like give them a sensational look they're so low rumbling and persistent and and I wonder if if you encountered that in the conversations that like in Ohio we're fo- we're so focused on a few things that we miss the forest for the trees so I, I could take that I mean we did the analysis uh, our colleague Dan Keating ran the numbers for us that Asheville residents are five times as likely to die of chronic illnesses like a heart attack, smoking-related issues, lung cancer, than they are to die of deaths of despair, you know, suicides, overdoses, things that have gotten a lot of federal attention and state money. And it was really interesting, you know, one of the folks I talked to that Dan and I have in the piece is Mike Zupp, who is a funeral home owner in Asheville, right? So he just isn't even surprised that a quarter of the people he buries are younger than him. And he is 52. It just, it doesn't even shock him anymore. I mean, what was shocking to him was that somebody showed up and wanted to ask questions about it. And I think that is really emblematic of the country's perspective on chronic illness. It's it's considered not necessarily a, a call to action, but it's a it's just a thing that happens. And I think something that our life expectancy series, not just Dan and I's and, and Dan Keating's piece takes a look at, but all of the pieces take a look at is is how many Americans are dying much younger than people think they are of, of preventative causes in some cases. When we were looking at these issues, and specifically in Ohio, Professor Skinner, we went to the Health Policy Institute of Ohio, a think tank that you may know, and their staff said, we feel like we've been shouting into the void when it comes to smoking. These are issues that have been with us. There was a fight over smoking, and that fight for many Americans feels in the past. So we were trying to re-examine some of these core causes that have not been in the news as much as we could have done a story on COVID and politics or opioids and politics. We were trying to look back deeper and things that have been out of the news cycle to put a spotlight back on them. And I often wonder, as you put a kind of national spotlight on something like Ohio, I mean, we want to be known for being ahead of the curve in things, but our legislative unresponsiveness, as, as and you talk about this in the piece a bit, there's a kind of crisis of democracy that we're talking about with gerrymandering and just the lack of kind of political possibility that seems here to be here, uh, but also just that it, it's led to this sense that this is this is what we have, this is who we are, and 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 I think that's the piece that as I read your article. It really makes me reflect. You know, just just the question of whether we actually believe we can fix things anymore, which is a basic reason to even have government. There seems to be a kind of sense of um, powerlessness, almost, and inevitability. So, Lauren and I, Professor, we were just talking about this before getting on the call with you. Uh, I went back and was looking at some of the testimony from a lobbyist who is fighting tobacco taxes over the years. And this is Beth Weimer. She represents the wholesalers and has 
appeared before the legislature and makes a very similar pitch year after year, including uh, that one reason not to raise tobacco taxes is people from other states are coming into Ohio because it's cheaper in Ohio, that that is an argument to keep the tobacco taxes low. And you can kind of take that out of context and say, well, wait, isn't, isn't that a bad thing? Shouldn't we make sure that cigarettes are harder to come by? And that is a question we, we put to Beth uh, Weimer when we sat down with her. So the idea that these are arguments that are just kind of taken at face value uh, and no one has really asked, maybe, maybe it's a bad thing that Ohio is a destination to buy cigarettes. It is striking when you actually sit back and think about the factors and the politics and the lack of action that leads to these trends that we're telling you about today. I don't think people sit around and talk about life expectancy in the legislature. I mean, DeWine said that in his state of the state that he would, you know, we're going to do, I'm going to ask you to do things that you're not going to see in your political lifetime. Most politicians don't want to do things that they're not going to see in their political lifetime that are not going to pay off for them in a short period of time. And that could have longstanding repercussions for them potentially if, if they irritate small businesses, for instance, with tobacco taxes. So you, you know, our reporting looked back over decades to show this. And a lot of times people don't have that kind of window into stuff or it's, it's on to the next story. It's on to the next thing. Final question, you know, articles like these at, you know, 5,000 words or so are necessarily limited. What did you encounter during the course of your reporting that, you know, you either wish you could have sort of gotten into some 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 pathways you went you wanted to go down but just couldn't didn't have the space or things that you know you know you you need to get to in the future God, the journalists lament all the things that didn't make it and even to the 5000 word article um, I'll take a first stab and then Lauren should should uh, jump in and add I, I think first professor Skinner you saw this firsthand I mean you and I talked multiple times at length and you're in the story, but just a sentence or two from Professor Skinner after after these multiple conversations over months. And there are people who we also talked to at length. Uh, I was in Erie, Pennsylvania, following around some volunteers working on better nutrition and farmers markets in these in these communities that don't have fresh food. That that completely got cut from the story. It was just kind of a bridge too far. So I think that's that's one that comes to mind. And then even broader than that, on, on public health. There are these things that I think you know that, that we've covered that many of your listeners might realize about, say, Medicaid expansion and the role of coverage expansion uh, and, and how that is also tied to Republicans resisting Medicaid over the years. But that's something that barely gets a nod in our story because 5,000 words might seem like a lot until you're the reporter trying to cram a year's worth of reporting into the, the uh, space limit that you have, especially at a publication like ours, where we think about the printed paper. And it's not just for digital consumption. It is about the paper that people will read in front of them. Wait, the what? There's a paper? <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully some of your listeners might be convinced to, to subscribe to it, too. It's still out there and it's still wonderful. Uh, just just for the record, I am a subscriber, but we'll get back to that in a minute. Lauren? I would just add, I mean, I think something that Dan and I talked about, you know, other there, there are other aspects of this that are worth exploring. You know, the nutrition crisis across different states, physician shortages, healthcare shortages, especially in areas like Chautauqua, Ashtabula, Erie access to care issues. Um, there's all kinds of things that we could have dove more heavily into the consolidation of healthcare and what's available and what's left in these places, I think is also fascinating and something that is a policy issue that we saw over and over and over again. But at the end of the day, as Dan says, 
5,000 words is really not that many when you've spent the amount of time as we did out there learning from people, talking to folks like yourself, calling around, driving through and wading through so many documents and filings and and research to best portray, best unpack what's actually been happening over the last couple of decades for our readers. And so we're glad to hear you enjoyed reading it. Well, kudos to the Washington Post for continuing to support reporting of this kind. I mean, it's it's really something that we we take for granted until it's gone. And as listeners know, on this show, I'm always looking for opportunities to give some love to healthcare reporters who do the kind of hard work that you've done here. So I want to thank you both for doing that. And also to your entire team. I want everybody to know this was a really um, like a pretty comprehensive project. The infographics and the visuals, they're all really stunning and really important to this. Uh, but Dan Diamond and Lauren Weber, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Professor. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests or topics or ways we can improve the show. Speaking of improving the show, to do that, we need your support. Consider chipping in a few bucks through our Patreon site, which is linked from prognosisohio.com. But even if you can't or you just won't, please tell your friends about the show. That really helps us as well. Stay tuned for our next episode in which I talk with former director of the Ohio Department of Health, Dr. Amy Acton. Be well. Thanks for listening.